Welcome everyone to the Seat Go Create podcast. This is your host, Tim Winders. I'm a coach for business owners, executives, and leaders. My wife and I consider ourselves nomads. We travel, live, and work in our 39-foot RV. I will tell you that today is somewhat unique in that I am actually in a sticks and bricks home. I'm visiting my family just east of Atlanta, so I'm not in the passenger seat of my RV recording my portion of the podcast. So I actually feel a little bit disoriented in being in an actual home. So anyway, listen, I want to ask one thing before I introduce our guest today. Make sure that you listen to the end of the podcast. We're going to include some special things for you, but primarily we'll include ways that you can continue the conversation that we start today. And listen, this is not about just a conversation today. We want to have dialogue and interact with you as we go forward. So please stay to the end so that you'll learn how you can do that. Today, we have Nicholas Henriksen as our guest. And Nicholas was, and I want to ask about that word was, was an avid golfer playing on Germany's national team for four years. After finishing his master's degree in Germany, he worked at Bain and Company, Merrill Lynch before, and Merrill Lynch before relocating to the U.S. in 2011. After graduating from Stanford Business School in 2013, he joined the startup accelerator Y Combinator, raised venture capital in 2015, and eventually sold the company to Carvana.com in 2017. I told him as we started, I just had a family member purchase a car from Carvana, and we're going to have discussions about that because they actually were blown away with the experience. He's been working with Carvana.com ever since, which is on its way to becoming the world's largest used car company. They are obsessed, and I love that word, obsessed with creating exceptional customer experiences. He's got wide range of other items we're going to discuss as an investor and in venture capital. So anyway, Nicholas, welcome to the Seek Go Create podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to have you here. First question, I like to ask this right out of the gate. You and I are on an elevator, if if we could even get on an elevator in the world we live in today with social distancing and all, but we're <laughs> on an elevator. We've got about five or six floors to go up. And I look over and I said, hey, hey, Nicholas, what do you do? You know, you've got a short period of time. Tell me what you do. You just did it. But no, um, I think I want to tell you, well, I was born and raised in Germany, as you can hear my accent. Parents are from Argentina. I used to play on the golf national team, decided not to turn pro. Moved to the U.S. to go to business school in Stanford. Started my first company, sold it to Cravana. And now I'm in the process of starting another company. This time, we're focused on helping people with challenge credit improve their credit and get out of this um, like loophole or vicious cycle of having bad credit. And so I'm really excited about working on that, that mission going forward from now on. Yeah, I, I jumped over to that website. I think your folks sent, sent the link to it. And so that's exciting. And I want to dive into that. But I, before we do that, I actually, there was a video that when I was just kind of snooping around, doing a little bit of research on you that I found where you were discussing passion and what you were passionate about. And you were, I think, encouraging a group of, uh, I think it was uh, uh, a collegiate group uh, to really pursue passion. And what I'd love for you to do is, first of all, tell us what you're passionate about. You know, we had some great words in your bio that you're obsessed with exceptional customer service and, and some other things there. But what are you passionate about? And then I'm probably going to follow it up and ask you to kind of teach us a little bit about what passion means like you did in that video. Okay. Well, 
I feel flattered you'd see that video. I didn't, didn't think anybody would ever see it. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time. Let's start with what I'm passionate about. I think it changes over over the years. I was I really loved playing golf. Like I didn't do it because um, because like I didn't have because I had time or it was my friends. I, I just really fell in love with the game. It's such a challenge. You play against yourself yeah. all the time. So if you play a tournament over four days, you think you play against the other players. Now you're constantly playing against yourself. Um, and so I, I just really enjoyed the journey of being hard on myself, rewarding myself with good shots, and then keeping myself accountable. Really enjoyed that that part of, of the the sport. It's it's a it's I think a unique sport in many ways. It's it's very challenging technically, but if you have discipline, you can actually master it. And then it's all in your head. Then you just need to believe in yourself and, and know how to calm down your temper if you're angry because you made a bad shot. And and so I really enjoyed that part. Then when I started my first job, I, I did work at Bain and Company. I did work at Merrill Lynch. Um, these were more like summer internship type experiences for three months each. And I actually didn't feel passionate about the work I was doing. I really enjoyed working with the colleagues, incredibly smart people. But I, I felt in my heart this was, not, this was not what I really wanted to do. And instead, I joined a very early stage company that invested in renewable, renewable energy projects in India and China. And so the main reason for joining them was definitely not financially. It was because I had the opportunity to travel and get to know new cultures. I, since my parents are from Argentina originally, I used to be traveling a lot in, in childhood and my teens. But I, I'd never spent a lot of time in India and China, very different cultures from the ones that I knew. And so I, I, I really enjoyed that part. I got really passionate about talking to people in the street. I remember when I was in Mumbai, I... I ran into this elephant on the street, couldn't believe it. It was just incredible, like incredible memories. And then the next step in my journey was going to, to Stanford Business School. There, I, I must be honest, I was lucky to get in. It's very, very hard to get in. Once you're in, the whole experience is around meeting very, very interesting people. And so what, what, I, what I realized is there were really two different types of people. There were some people who were specialists, like people who just nailed one specific topic or one sp specific, be it a sport or be it, be it like working for an NGO. And I'll go into a good example in a second. And then there's more generalists. And I recognize about myself, I'm more of a generalist. Like I, there's nothing I'm particularly good at, uh, which makes it really hard when you want to start a company because usually big companies are built out of problems you face and, and things you feel passionate about. And so part of the motivation to move to the US, go to Stanford, was to go into tech, start another company. And I got actually really frustrated with the two years experience in business school that I just couldn't find the one thing I care about enough to start a company. And it was when I ran into my now good friend and former co-founder, Chris Coleman, uh, when, when it clicked, because he is incredibly passionate about cars. Like he loves cars, total car nut. His first car was a DeLorean, you know, the one from Back to the Future with these yeah. cars. <laughs> So that, that's passion. <laughs> if that's your first car, and he bought it wrecked on, face, uh, on Craigslist and fixed it up with his, with his dad. And so what I learned about myself and what I think is true for all these generalists out there is if you don't know exactly what you feel passionate about to s make it worthwhile spending your time solve your problems, just orient yourself and look at the other group of people who are very, very narrowly specialized in something, on a hobby. In my case, it was Chris being on cars. And just spend time with them, and you'll you'll realize that 
they have insides that you don't have, but they often lack the ability to get going. And so Chris and I make a, what I think really strong teams because like I'm a, you, your, your podcast is Seek, Go, Create. He's the seeker, I'm the creator. Oh, cool. Um, or maybe go and create. He seeks and he has all these, he's so curious and knows everything and reads everything. But then when, it, when it's about to get going, that's where my strength comes into play. So this was a long-winded answer, but I hope there's a few nuggets that were helpful. No, there. I actually took about a half a page of notes on okay. just that statement. So that makes just, you a fast writer. <laughs> just so you know, and also so you know a little bit about my rhythm and those people that are listeners know this. I, I usually spend some time researching and I write out all these really cool, awesome questions. And then we usually start and five minutes in, I've got these notes that usually take us in different directions, which is cool, though. I like that flow. So there's a couple of things that I want to pull from what you just said and maybe even go a little bit deeper because here's the, here's the first thing that came to mind when you brought up the specialist versus generalist, I think it was Malcolm Gladwell that wrote the book outliers that talked about the 10,000 hours that someone's supposed to do something. And, you know, we give examples of Tiger Woods and people that just start at something when they're five years old and they just do it, do it, do it until they're at a level that is unsurpassed. I was never that either. I have so many interests, so many things that I love, maybe things I'm okay at, maybe some things I'm better than okay. Maybe I think I'm, maybe we're delusional too, you know, but, but really I just, I love the breadth of a lot of things. Well, a couple of years ago, I read a book by David Epstein called range, which is okay. the antithesis or the, or the counter to Malcolm Gladwell's outliers. And, and Nicholas, he talks about Roger Federer, <laughs> who basically started playing tennis when he was a late teenager. He's very involved with the fashion industry, with the design, and he's very well read in a lot of areas. He's great at tennis, world-class, obviously, but he would be the counter to that. And so to me, I think you and I fit in that range. We, we, we have this, I don't know if it's curiosity. I mean, are you curious about a lot of things? I'm yeah, ridiculously curious. I ask all these questions. My friends get annoyed. <laughs> yeah, you ask a lot of questions, and they're not anti- yeah. yeah, they're not antagonistic. It's because you truly want to know about a lot of different things. Correct? Yeah, yeah, that's true. It's it's so I love. I don't know the second book. I took a note. I'll read it because I'm fascinated. Outliers is such a good book for two reasons. A, the ten thousand hours. Ten thousand is a, like it's hard to grasp what type of order my name that's that's more than a year has hours and a year usually you sleep at least half of it or two one third of it so it it really requires dedication and funny enough i believe i I haven't counted but i I could imagine that i got close to ten thousand hours playing golf so i don't think it's universally true that i didn't have like this narrow narrow minded focus um what i do believe though is from then on like now that i that I need to ask myself, or I want to ask myself, what's, what's the topic I want to spend my time on? That's where it becomes a little tough. And that's why it's really helpful to have Chris, who, who 100% has spent $10,000 hours on, on thinking about cars. Yeah. And then we get a question like, give me your elevator pitch, or what do you do? And I do lots of things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do a lot of things. That's true. <laughs> Yeah. And, but, but I mean, that's not a bad thing because I I think we need the self-awareness to know not really where we fit, 
but what does drive that passion in us? What are your thoughts on that? Agree. I think, well, you, you can't change the way you are, right? You can work on yourself. You can get marginally better and find your blind spots and make sure you're aware of them. But you, you, you can't add $10,000 of passion to a specific topic in your past. Like the only thing you can do, you can have it in front of you and then spend time on it. Um, so don't force yourself. Like don't be hard on yourself. I caught myself doing business school being hard on myself that I just didn't know which direction to go. And I felt like um, I might not be a good entrepreneur. Um, mm -hmm. And so what I needed to find for myself is I'm just not that guy. Like I'm not the guy who has these deep, deep rooted hobbies. This one thing I'm so excited about to spend all my life on, but I don't actually think you need that. I think you need somebody in the founding team to have that passion. Right. Yeah. Someone like a Chris who it's cars. Exactly. He, he's yeah. always going to be in that car space. It sounds like. Yeah. hundred percent for the rest of his life. He was, for a little context, he went to McKinsey. No, he wanted to become a, um, so he went to MIT undergrad, studied mechanical engineering, wanted to be an engineer at one of the Formula One companies. Mm. And so he actually looked into the space and realized, well, if I did that, I would like do research on one screw, not in the vehicle. Like I want the big picture. And so he went to McKinsey thinking that he could like jump into, take a, like through, use it as a, as a springboard into a, a like a managerial role in a car company ended up working for McLaren in the UK, like indeed a formula one company between first and second year of business school. Didn't, didn't enjoy, like didn't, he loved the products, but building business is just not a great business. Building cars isn't a great business. And, and then he was like, found this dilemma. I really love this, but I don't think this is the best use of my time. And so that's how we ended up starting starting our company where we started, believe it or not, helping our classmates sell their used cars. Really? <laughs> so it was yeah. to fill it. It was to fill a need, which is people asked us. Yeah. People asked us very specifically. Yeah. They asked Chris, of course they asked Chris because he knows everything about cars. So naturally yeah. if you need to sell your car and you have, you just have these 400 new friends that you met at business school, obviously you'll ask the car guy, what should I do with my car? Yeah. And we, I happened to be right next to him when all these questions came and I was confused and Chris like, should we just sell those cars and see what happens? I thought that's crazy. Yeah. And so we ended up selling our classmates' cars. We detailed them the day of graduation, took photos, listed them on Craigslist, went on all these test drives. Um, and yeah, that's how we started. So I know it had a big impact on, on your future, but you mentioned being frustrated at Stanford Business School and, uh, and it, probably because you were seeking out where you fit and how you interacted. But but would would you do that again? And with the mindset that you have now, would you do it differently? I guess would be no, the thing. I was frustrated mainly with myself okay. that I just couldn't find what I want to work on. And I felt like there's all these brilliant people around me. Everybody's starting companies. What's wrong with me? Why don't, why don't I have this thing that you need to start a company? That was the frustration. Business school was an incredible experience. Yeah. You go into it with very different expectation than you, you, you go out of it. I went into it as, yeah, I want to, I, I, so I, I caught my, I, I get caught, caught up in details quickly. Or that's what I used to, if, if you work with me now, you'd be surprised. Cause like I was very, had this high level of attention to lots of details, but spend a lot of time in spreadsheets. Uh -huh. um, and so one of my objectives was like, see the bigger picture, see the, the forest and not only the trees. Um, and so I feel like business school taught me like that lesson and, it made me be, which that I think is important for an entrepreneur, 
like you look for step changes, you look for big differences, not small improvements. And so I feel like I, I learned that when a business school talking to my classmates, because most of what you learn, you, you do learn from your classmates. They have these incredible backgrounds. Um, and so, yeah, that, that helped me find the big picture. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Absolutely. And, you, and another thing you mentioned earlier that triggered it when, when you were first talking about passion, you mentioned travel. You yeah. talked about being on the streets of Mumbai. I've been to Mumbai. I actually have some clients that are in Mumbai, which I is love really, that city. really cool and cool and fun. That's a very interesting country, interesting part of the world. Yeah. I've actually, I have this theory. I, you know, my wife and I have been traveling essentially since 2013 and all over the U.S.? Uh, all, all over the place. We, we actually spent uh, a good bit of time in New Zealand and Australia and, and kind of lived Incredible. there for around nine months and, and then traveled around the U.S. And then about a year and a half, yeah, a year and a half ago, moved into an RV. And so we actually believe that we're in the perfect social distancing lifestyle and you situation. Are. You are, 100%. I actually just went to Yellowstone, Chris and I, after we left Carvana three weeks ago, he and I rented a little cabin near Yellowstone, and then we drove up there and just took a, took a week off. Very nice. socially distant. Yeah, and how was it up there, especially with all that's going on? Because our son is actually traveling and going to be trying to get up that way. He loves Jackson and the Tetons and all. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that we went to the Tetons. So when we got so lucky because when we arrived, the park had opened a day or two before. Mm. And so all the international tourists aren't there. So as you can imagine, there's not a lot of people, but there's a lot to see. You can spend literally going straight down the road, three hours in Yellowstone, you're still in the park. It's so big. From Europe, you're just not used to the scales things can have here. So a few things that you've mentioned, you mentioned that you're a generalist. You mentioned that you love to travel. And uh, one other thing that you said related to anyway, but you and an entrepreneur, you kind of talked about all of those things. I'm going to kind of mash all those together because to me, there is a certain degree of, I don't want to say non-complacency or frustration with the present or, I mean, there's a lot of things I could throw at it. They, you know, desire or hunger for something different. Does all that fit into that? Because, you know, I, I, I would guess if I were to tell you that you were going to sit in an office for 30 years in, I don't care where it was in the world. I mean, if it were in the Bay Area, if it were in New York, or if it were in, you know, the middle of Iowa, you would probably get a little bit antsy and not be excited about it. Would that be true? Yeah, I think that's a fair description. There is, you made it sound negative, um, like disappointment or complacent. There's just anxiety because of inspiration, I would call it. There's so many things you can do. Yeah, the, the potential, what's out there exactly. in the world. And and so one of the things I've always had this theory about with entrepreneurs, this this is in the entrepreneur category, our podcast. And one thing that's always been amazing is sometimes entrepreneurs, we don't stay with one thing very long at times. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and I remember I had someone ask me the question one time because I worked corporate right when I came out of Georgia Tech and I was bouncing around jobs within this one large corporation and someone, a family member, you know, well loving and all said, Hey, can you stick with anything at all? Or are you just 
bouncing around. Well, I was bored, you know, three days I stepped in there. So, so how do you define, and especially with your experience at Stanford and all that you're doing, how do you define entrepreneurship? I mean, is there a good definition that you have or some characteristics or traits? Um, like, I, I don't think there's a unique description because if you look at all the entrepreneurs, they're all very different. Like, they become very strong opinionated. So like think of Elon Musk or think of Mark Zuckerberg or think of all these entrepreneurs, you know, they, they come across as very like strong, strong, have, have, having strong opinions. I think that's the outcome of the journey because on day one, you, you tell somebody a story of here's what I want to build and everybody thinks it looks at you and said, you're crazy, but doesn't, so it can't work. And so the journey of an entrepreneur is to just not take no as an answer ever. Because the second you do, you you just you just you just agreed that the, the status quo is ideal, which I don't think it is ever. Um, and so entrepreneurs don't take no as an answer. They're I think frugal people. They're willing to hack things together. They're not ashamed. They don't. They're not embarrassed putting products in front of people to test whether they work. Um, and then I don't think they're. They say they disagree to everything just because of the sake of disagreeing. I think. They're actually very smart people and understand most most things are right. And I also don't understand most things. There's just this one insight that I have that makes me believe that the world is this way, but it should be that way. I think that's what, at least I think that's true for me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's good. Is it, and, and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to say, a, there is a certain degree of looking at things and thinking that it can be better and a number of people look at things. I'll give you an example. You guys are part of a company and I want to get into the details of the the history of this in a little while. So I don't, I don't want to dive into it yet, but you're part of what I would say is a disruption in an industry. Listen, 10 years ago, if I wanted a used car, well, 10 years ago, there was a few, you know, um, a few that were starting to develop nationwide, but let's just say a few years back, you know, you, you, you look through some classified ads. I'm a, I'm, I'm old enough to remember buying my first car. It used to be offline. <laughs> yeah. 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 All, offline, like an actual newspaper. And I, you know, would highlight and circle. I'd pick up the phone and call. I would go look. I mean, my first car I bought, I'm dating myself. I spent $400 for a 74 Vega. Most people on this call will not even know what a Vega is. You may not even know what a Vega is. I don't. Chris it was, the, it was the worst engineered. It was a, anyway, horrible, horrible. But, but so, so you guys began disrupting, but was it a total disruption or were you just tweaking? I mean, that, that's something that I always look at with like an Uber and places like that. Were they really disrupting or are they just, uh, methodically improving upon something that's already there. Yeah. Disruption is an interesting word because it's being coined by Clay Christensen, the Harvard professor who wrote The Innovator's Dilemma. Yeah. If you were to ask me a good book to read, I would tell you that one. Um, I think he defines there's two types of disrupt- disruption, a low, low end or low market, low end market disruption, I think, and a new market disruption. Mm-hmm. Um, one is you just take the customers all the other incumbents don't want to deal with and you create a good experience for them and then you just expand from there. The other one is more like product has never been sold and now it's new and creates value. Uh-huh. Uh, let's see, what did we do? 
we I'll talk about our company first and okay. then I explain Carvana. Carvana is just fascinating and incredible. Yeah. But and yeah, incredible. And I'll tell you why in a second. Our company, our conviction was there must be an audience out there that is willing to buy online. Because if the people exist, then there is a, a more affordable and cheaper quote unquote way to get the cars to customers and so we can offer cars cheaper mm-hmm. like in our case we we advertised vehicles that were not in our inventory but in the inventory of institutional sellers leasing companies or rental companies straight to the consumer usually they go through a wholesale auction to a dealership and then to the consumer and we thought if we find an audience that buys online they can have access to these cars hence cars will be cheaper and then they'll, you'll, you'll create a flywheel and so that was true that was true. That was particularly true for two types of audiences, people who were not emotional about a car purchase because they couldn't test drive. And these were Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, people who just knew exactly what they wanted and they wanted to pay the lowest price for it. One on the other audience, and this is something we tapped into without realizing, this was just serendipity, people who lease vehicles and then at the end of the lease love their vehicle, but the residual value, so what it would cost to buy the car is much higher than what the car costs in the retail market. So in our case, and again, we didn't notice that until, like with hindsight, it made sense, but we didn't notice when it happened. There was this Nissan Leaf, these, this <coughs> first electric vehicle that was sold in a large scale. Mm-hmm. Nissan needed to sell them. And the way OEMs can promote sales is by offering really, really attractive leases. So the lease for the vehicle was probably $150 or so a month, or maybe $200 a month. And then after two or three years, the car has a residual value for which you can purchase the vehicle. Mm. But since, since, since these lease payments were so low, the residual was very high. And then for people who didn't buy the vehicle, these vehicles would all end up at what's called the wholesale auction, the marketplace where dealerships buy their vehicles from. <coughs> Sorry. And since the market was flooded because nobody bought these cars, the prices to buy these cars from wholesale for me as a dealership were incredibly low. Right. And then if I offered these cars directly to the consumer, the difference was the first person, literally the first person to buy a car from, from us was a 65-year-old person, completely different than we expected, who had a Nissan Leaf on a lease, was offered to buy it for 20000 and we were offering them for 14000 So he bought almost the identical car from us with lower miles. And so these two audiences were people who were willing to do something that nobody else was willing to do by a car in line. Um, and then from there, going mainstream, I think, would then manif- manifest like the total disruption. We, we didn't achieve that in our company. We just couldn't do it because then, then you need to be able to offer financing to a bigger audience with lower credit. Like, I don't think we truly, truly fit that defin- definition. Carvana, however, I think would. Mm. The way Carvana did it was fully vertically integrated, had the same approach. We'll find an audience, the first audience willing to buy online then it's all about customer experience. If you have a good experience, you tell your neighbor exactly as you said earlier, your neighbor will start buying. And all of a sudden you go from like this, this think of it as a bowling alley. You, you, you kick, off, kick over the first pin and then they start falling because people talk about it. And so Carvana did a very, very, very good job in doing so. And then, then you get tailwinds. This happens in a lot of startups where you just fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. And people think it's crazy to buy a car online and then COVID happens. And now people think it's crazy to buy a car offline. Yeah. And so these are, this is how startups go from early adopters to slowly crossing the chasm. And all of a sudden mass market realizes, Oh, that's the way to go. 
Does that make sense? It absolutely does. In fact, I want to I want to put an actual story on it. Um, our daughter and son-in-law, kind of in the middle of all that was going on during uh, you know shutdowns, lockdowns, and all, kind of decided that it was time for them to get a new car. They had a they, you know they had our first grandchild back in February. Oh, they realized right. their car didn't fit, so so they so they would be, and this would have been you know one of the first major purchases for them as a as a young couple. And uh, they could not go out to any dealerships. You know, they were all closed down or they wanted appointments or they or they went and, you know, sometimes dealerships are weird without a pandemic. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, yeah, and I'm not listening. I know that. Yeah, I know. I've got some good friends that they have some dealerships. They have used car dealerships and all, too. And so I'm I'm not saying anything. But listen, I, I don't think it's anything high on people's list that they desire to go do is to really go car shopping. You know, I mean, maybe there are, I don't know, maybe your buddy, you know, Chris, he loves going and looking at cars. Most people would rather not do it, but also kind of what you said, it's hard to imagine people buying a car online. I mean, it isn't, it isn't like to me, it's not anymore. (laughs) And I'm I'm sure to your daughter and son-in-law, they'll tell you it's crazy not to, yeah, because here's here's the rest of the story. They kept asking me and, you know, dad here going, I don't know. I don't know much about it. Y'all just check it out. And so they were comparing it to locals. What they did, though, this was, this was kind of the thing that helped. Maybe it's the lease model that you just mentioned. They bought a car that was similar to one that we had. It was like a Hyundai Tucson that was just a couple oh, years nice. old. And so they were able to drive it. They were they were familiar with it. It wasn't like an entirely different vehicle that they weren't familiar with. It's kind of like the lease thing, right? Yeah, very similar. Yeah. And yeah, that's true. But you said yourself there was a big hurdle. And had they not been forced to, they wouldn't have tried it. Because in doubt, it's a very big purchase, very emotional also. And you want to test drive. But um, I'm, I'd be very surprised if your uh, daughter and son-in-law didn't buy your car, your next, the next car from Carvana again, because it was a good experience. That's all we're trying to do. Oh, it was fantastic. So she went ahead and, you know, pushed by after she went through the process and she kept saying, this is such an easy process online. Of course, there was not a car there yet. And a few days later, flatbed truck, yeah, yeah, (laughs) flatbed truck shows up and there's the car and she goes, wow, it's actually more impressive than what we kind of thought, you know, clean and all that type thing. And I said, well, listen, why don't you schedule an appointment at the dealership to get it checked over during your seven day period? So this is the best part. And I I think you guys will dig this. They went to the Hyundai dealership. This was out in Colorado Springs and pulled in, of course, had the Carvana tags on the front and back, I think. And, and the, and the, the manager of the service department came out kind of chuckling and said, Oh, Carvana, huh? (laughs) <laughs> and uh, he says, you need oil change? What do you need? We need to check it. He goes, well, we just got it. We just wanted to check it out if we need to pay something and all. So anyway, the manager of the shop came out and said, this car is in fantastic shape, excellent condition. Oil doesn't need change. You know, it's everything's good. Tire, everything is in great shape. And so they walked away with an absolutely phenomenal experience. And like you said, not only are they going to do it, but I just on my podcast to who knows how many listeners shared the story. So 
That's why it's important to be obsessed with customer experience because then Tim talks about it. <laughs> yeah. So, so how have they captured that customer experience? You know, it's one thing. Everybody talks about customer, but, you know, in your intro it says, you know, obsessed with customer service. What are some of the things that, I mean, we've got a lot of business owners here. What are some of the things that they tapped into and what are some things that we all can learn from that? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to give you all my personal opinions. I think that's also what matters much more, but, and I'll tell you what we did wrong. I think that makes it even more Ooh, interesting. That would be Chris awesome. And I, Chris and I are like hyper rational. We, we looked at the car market and we're like, okay, so there's, you as a private person, you own this lease, you give it back to the dealer. It actually is part of the OEM family now. Now it gets to go to other dealership, physically be transported, go to the wholesale auction, go to the next dealership, and then go to the customer. Like, there's 10 steps, literally 10 steps, a lot of them physically, physically moving the car. That just doesn't feel efficient. Right. And so we said, if we figure out a way to cut out more steps, make it more direct, the transaction, the most direct transaction transaction would be from private party to private party. That's how we started. The problem is you have two individuals who don't understand cars that well and prices. And so they have very different expectations peer to peer, very hard to make work. Um, but there's institution to peer. So we can skip the wholesale auction and the dealership, which also means transporting the vehicle twice and paying two institution money. And so as a result, the math worked out, we were able to offer cars cheaper. What we ended up doing, we listed these cars and same as you mentioned, classified. Now there's the online version of it. Yeah. And as a result, as you'd expect, most of our cars were the first one in the search results because we were priced cheaper and the consumer sorts by price. And so our conviction was, well, our job is done. Now we just sit down and wait, people will call us. And that was true. We were getting a lot, a lot, a lot of calls, emails, and text messages, much more than any other dealership we knew because our price was low. We were always first in the search result. What we underestimated is the emotional, emotional component, component of a car sale. Mm. Like it's, and admittedly, like I would always catch myself making that mistake again, and so I'm, I'm glad I recognize that. A car purchase, purchase is incredibly emotional. Like you need to speak to people's emotions and not only price. It all starts with price because that's how you get the quote-unquote lead. But then you need to really understand the situation of your daughter. She had a kid. They need to go to a new car. There was the pandemic going on. Like there's so many things going on. And so the most important part, I think, once you have a product is understanding the emotions of your customers. And I think Carvana did an exceptional job doing that. Right. So how I may not know how they did that because I didn't go through the process. How does one. All right. So you guys very rational, which truthfully I get. That's kind of my yeah, that's you know, thing. Yeah, it's very rational. Come on. But but it doesn't Literally, really. Come on and people don't do it. The way the journey starts for Carvana is usually like there's multiple marketing channel. But I think the one that at least my friends remind me of all the time, TV ads. And so the TV ads are just exceptional. The team creating them is exceptional. I love all of them. I'm so impressed. I, I wish I wish they could think like these guys think. They're they're incredibly creative and they're exactly the 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 other like the counter counter thinking of me, me being hyper rational. They think incredibly emotional. They've done they've been in the industry for a long time and they're creating TV ads that just really seem to resonate with with uh, with our customers. Yeah. If you guys didn't go through the acquisition 
with Carvana, with, yep. with your company, have you thought through maybe where you would be now? Could you have pivoted? Could you have made that adjustment at all? Good question. Yeah. So for a little more context, we, we started a car business, like a heavy operational business. We were selling around 150 cars a month. Mm -hmm. Um, that's meaningful in a certain, like in a small geography. Um, so compared to other independent dealerships, that was, that wasn't bad. That was pretty good. Um, we just didn't think we can get to scale. And so we built an operational business. What we ended up selling was a team and software. Okay. And so what we ended up selling was very different than what we ended up, what we started out. What, what would we have done if there hadn't been an acquisition? Chris and I actually had fundraising conversations. And so we, we dual tracked, triple tracked multiple options. One would have been raise more money and then either iterate on the value proposition or figure out something else that we could do. And interestingly, and this will, this will make you laugh, one thing we looked into was uh, helping customers with bad credit get out of bad credit. And mm. so the reason I'm saying that is if, if you go to the dealership, what usually happens is you negotiate on the price on the car. And then when you feel like, okay, I won the battle, I'm getting the price I want, yeah. then the, the dealership asks you, how are, how are you going to pay for this car? And your answer is, oh, I need a loan. Dealer says, no problem. I work with 100 lenders. I can help you. And now you have the dilemma of you and the dealer wanting different things. You want the lowest rates. The dealer wants to make money, rightly so, because you just negotiated endlessly with him on the car. Mm -hmm. And so he'll refer you to the lender that pays him the highest referral fee. That's just what happens, especially if you're not in the prime segment. If you have perfect credit, you know what your rate would be. If your credit score is, say, below 700, you actually don't know. It's very opaque. Um, and since people shop for cars and not loans, you're very uninformed by the time you have the conversation around your loan. And so we feel like that, that information asymmetry and then these disincentives is something that, that's worth exploring and aligning. And the first time the idea came up was during the process of potentially selling our previous company. And so now for more context, fast forward, I left Carvana, Chris and I left Carvana three weeks ago, and that's exactly where we start off. Huh. Like we want to help people with bad credit, challenge credit, get out of the hole because they're making these really high payments on their car. Although their credit might, might have already migrated to a more positive one. Right. And for refinancing, that's the first help. But then all the car ownership expenses, be it insurance products or gap insurance, which is an insurance product you buy, or warranties, all of these products, like you want to constantly adjust that to your needs. And there's nobody out there that does it in a digital way. Right. So, so one of the things that it appears that you have done with at least these models is filled some gaps. You know, you, there were some gaps that were identified, but it's also interesting. I'm always fascinated by the journey that we go on Yeah. because earlier you mentioned that you and Chris, you know, you guys started and you use the word iteration so we could say, but you didn't realize that there was a gap between, you know, some of the large institutional, you know, the coming off yeah. lease and things and people that were also coming off of a lease and you played matchmaker there truthfully, yeah. but yeah. you didn't realize that until after you started, correct? Um, yeah. So we had one ambition and we thought people did it for one reason and we landed somewhere else and people did it for another reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
you just need to give yourself the opportunity. I think entrepreneurship starting companies all about giving yourself the opportunity to be surprised. Yeah. One of our one of our closest investors and friends and very impressive entrepreneur, he always says, savor surprises. So you have to get going with something. Know that what you'll end up doing in the end is going to be very different. And the pivots you make, the changes you make to the product are because of surprises that you encounter. Right. So uh, I want to ask a couple more questions about that topic before we go into and I want you to kind of tell the story and let us know all that you're doing with this new venture that you have and some of the other projects you've got going. There are many people that they will not start something until they know 90% of what it's going to look like or there's they've gone through the business plan even if they've gone through the lean startup they still may have this mindset of I can't start unless I know not just what B and C looks like, but I need to know all the way to M, N, O, P, Q, you know, whatever. And I'm guessing if, if I'm wrong, you tell me, I'm guessing you guys had a business plan, but you pivoted fairly quickly. And I guess, I guess the question is this, did you have a business plan? (laughs) And how closely did the actual real world business mirror the original plan that you had? I, I think it was, was it Mike Tyson who says everybody has a plan until I punch you in the face? Yeah, until, until you get punched in the face and then it's like, okay, game on. Now we got a fight on our hands. Well, in a, in a startup that happens on day one, <laughs> like your plan is as good as the next six hours or so. That's why if, you, if you're in Silicon Valley, for example, a very experienced venture capitalist, I, I've not been asked for a business plan early on, like in your early stages of a company, they don't ask you for a business plan. They ask you, what's the problem that you're trying to address? Who cares? Is it big? And are you uniquely positioned to figure out a solution? And if you have an idea, already tell me that. That's how very early stage companies get funded in Silicon Valley. Um, nobody will ask you what's your budget for the next three, six, nine, twelve months. Like people would ask, and they ask out of curiosity, but the answer they want to get is not a number. The answer they want to get is where's the emphasis? Like, are you going to use a lot of money to acquire customers? If you have to do that, might not be as good of a business as if it's something that can virally grow. Um, and so they ask you these questions in order to understand how you're thinking about the business and less so around, do you know exactly what you'll do the next three, six, nine, 12 months? Because everybody knows you just can impossibly know. But the best example that I love mentioning is, um, I forgot his name. We can look him up. Do you know the company Slack? Yes. The messaging? Yeah, um, so the founder of yeah, Slack, yeah. first company he started was a gaming company. He pivoted and started Flickr sold it yeah he then said this time i'll start a gaming company starts a gaming company pivots ends up selling slack or going public with Slack. and if you ask him and or if you there's interviews about him people asking him what's the next thing is like i guess i'll start a gaming company (laughs) but things change people these these things always change you just need to give yourself a chance at finding out what actually gets traction Right. And now that's an excellent message there. Almost a quotable item. Give yourself a chance. I'm going to ask you to do something that might be tough, but I know we have a lot of listeners outside of a Silicon Valley environment. We'll even say mom and pop businesses or people that have an idea 
that, yeah. you know, it may not be this huge sweeping problem to solve, but they, they may be frozen in how to get started or go to the yeah. next step. Nicholas, can you give, I mean, even if it's just encouragement, can you give just some get started tips if someone thinks they've got a thought and idea, yeah. even if it's a better way to be a plumber or yeah. something like that, uh, anything like that that would be helpful for folks that are outside of, let's say, the venture capital world? Yeah. So one thought on venture capital, because that's the space I just am most familiar with. Yep. Everything has changed since the pandemic. When I used to meet funds and investors in person, I would drive up and down Silicon Valley from San Francisco to Menlo Park and back. Yeah. All these meetings are online, works exactly the same way, so high quality meetings. And so this is great, which also means founders all of a sudden don't have to be in the Bay Area anymore. They can be everywhere. And since cost of living have risen a lot over the last, I don't know, ever since I moved there nine years, nine years ago. Yeah. Um, now having a distributed team is a very positive thing, for example. So yeah. that, that's just a side note. The investors that used to be have monopolies in Silicon Valley are now everywhere, thanks to Zoom. And yeah pandemic um i think there's there's very different ways though to to start a company it's like step one or two or three if, if you have a conviction and if you have an idea and it happens to be a product platforms like kickstarter or indiegogo for example are great um, and the reason i'm saying that is not because you you want to have revenue but you can you can get money like future revenue as a source to develop your product today you basically pre-sell your product you just need to find an audience and it's all about selling, right? It's ultimately, when, when, when you start a new company, you're, you're selling investors, you're selling employees on a vision. You can do the same thing there. I think it's more social media driven. So it lends itself a lot for individuals who, if you hustle, you'll get your way. And so I think that's how I would start. Yeah. But uh, what I think I would avoid doing is that's the advice I'm getting. Don't invest too much of your own capital hmm. because you have, like in life, you have time and cash, like time and savings. And if you put all your eggs, your savings and your time into the same basket, I think that's risky. And very few of the entrepreneurs you know have done that. Most of them either hadn't had any money when they started or took out money early on in the process just to diversify their portfolio and then be, be fearless on, the, on, on what they do day to day. So those would be my thoughts. Yeah, and that's good. And, and I, want, I want to circle back to what you said is the conversation that someone has in venture capital Silicon Valley, which is what is the problem? Who cares? Is it big? Yep. The thing that I see value on with Kickstarter, Indiegogo, or if you're just going to friends or family and saying, hey, listen, will you get involved? Is people with clarity describing what they're trying to do. True. True. Yeah. yeah. There's Mark Twain at this incredible... I love Mark Twain. I'm not even uh, born and raised in the U.S., but I love just his use of the English language. He said, I didn't have the time to write your short letter, so I wrote you a long letter. <laughs> and uh, so I fall into that trap all the time where I'm, like, I'm writing this really smart email. I'm like, I don't think anybody's going to read this. And then you spend time, and the outcome is one paragraph that's really crisp and gets the message across. And I, that's just how people communicate. The attention span is so short. Uh, I think that's a, that's a skill, trainable skill. Yeah. And one thing that happens, you know, we started this off talking about passion. If someone is passionate about cars, let's say your buddy, buddy, Chris, 
and and they're wanting to start a business in the in that field or arena you know people probably don't want to know how a car is built <laughs> no and there's a true risk he he describes it as being apologize the language peak idiot he just knew so much that he was very dangerous but he didn't actually know everything and and so he, if he was here, which would have been really fun, um, he says he was so humbled in the first months or a couple of months after we started because he thought he understood the space and then realized he didn't. And so, um, yeah, you, you don't make yourself believe you understand what you're doing because once you take a step further, you're like, oh, this, this is all new territory to me. Sure, 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 sure. Well, that's, that's excellent. Thank you for that advice. A couple other questions I want to I want to address before we because I think I want us to wrap with you kind of laying out what you guys are doing now and yeah. let people know how they can connect with you and 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 even take advantage of all of that but you mentioned that you had come to the U.S. in 2011 I believe it was yep. that your parents were from Argentina you spent some time in in Germany we're in such a weird world right now Nicholas. And, and, you know, we've got a lot of, and I, I don't really want to get into the political weeds, but there's so many people that are thinking so nationalist. I really love talking to people that have traveled and had exposure outside. Yeah. Um, what was that like for you moving to the U S in 2011? Was it for school or were you, were you coming went, here to do startup? Yeah. Okay. No, straight, straight to a separate business school. Yeah. Um, it's funny that you say that, and it's flattering that you, you like internationals. Most of my friends from business school, not all of them, but most of the internationals found themselves very quickly, and those were the early early friendships we formed. For example, we first year business school, we live on campus. Second year, you find houses nearby, and we we found these four houses super super close to each other, fitting four people each. So there were sixteen people. 16 people from 13 different nations. So a very, very international group. Yeah. Um, and so I think the reason being is that, like I, the, the, the reason I enjoy traveling is because you, you just get to know new cultures and perspectives and you, you have a conversation and you, about a topic that you've had the conversation 10 times with your friends at home and all, all of a sudden in a new country, maybe even a new language, which makes it even more fun. Yeah, and people at angles that you haven't even thought about. Like they have problems that you haven't thought about. They have like cultural cultural aspects that you haven't thought about because you just didn't know. And I think it creates some curiosity. And when I talk to internationals, I feel like the even small talk conversations go quickly much deeper into, hey, tell me what have you learned? And and then you also listen. You learn to listen. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying Americans don't listen, but I felt like internationals don't start out with a pitch. This is me. Like that's why when you asked me the elevator pitch, it became really uncomfortable. Um, Americans are trained to do that. And they're exceptional doing that. They come across as so confident, which is awesome. I wish, I wish I came across that way. Um, but then I think to go from there to past small talk, I always struggle a little bit. Yeah. I found my ways and I feel really at home and I have the green card and I'm, I'm lucky to be here and I'm happy to be here and I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon. Um, but there is a little bit of that dynamic where like, how do I, how do I get to know the piece and the person in front of me? Cause right now I'm just seeing this picture perfect person and I, I don't know how to maneuver myself around it versus internationals who are, tend to be humble and like, uh, 
and, and create, create transparency easier so you can actually talk about things that, that I think a little bit deeper, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's so good too. One of the things that helped me when we traveled was just getting other perspectives. You know, there's a big world out there. There's yeah. a lot of people. And in general, people, you know, they want to, they want their families to do well. They, they, they show love to people. They like being loved. We like being, you know, and I do think, and I, I think this is actually shifting and listen, I've lived to, sort of in, uh, in the United States most of my life. I think there's a little bit of a shifting. I don't know if the United States is being humbled or what. I, I just think like you, there's so much value to interacting with people that have a different perspective. Yeah, diversity is, I think, very, very important. Yeah, and even diversity, you know, we're in, we're in a time as we record this in summer of 2020 where, you know, diversity is kind of relating to skin color and, 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 and sex and all of those things. But I actually, and this is why I enjoy our conversation, see, to me, diversity is what goes on inside this head here, the yeah, mind. I agree. Both you, dimensions are true. Yeah. And, and a lot of it has to do with maybe, you know, how you grew up and where you grew up. I grew up in the Southern U.S. and I kind of think to myself at times, hmm, what are some of the good things because of where I grew up and what are some of the yeah. hurdles I've had to overcome? And yeah, anyway, that's very cool. Yeah. No. Yeah. I think it's I still have to digest what's going on out here. It, it's sad and it's it's not ideal. I, I it's, I think it's a very difficult topic. Also, it's a very difficult topic for the country. Like it, yeah. it's not the answers aren't easy. Yeah, yeah, and we and you know we're at the time we're recording this. Obviously, there's a lot of turmoil and a lot of things that are going on, and we're just hopeful that things can get better. And so, let's talk about now what you've done since you sold to. Carvana, I think you actually started doing a lot of other investing because on your LinkedIn profile, you've got investing in a pretty wide, go back to generalist range, both country and also industry that you're invested in. And I guess I wanted to ask, did that lead to, I know the the, the car finance that we're going to talk about here, the digital auto finance plant platform, but, but talk a little bit about that journey that led up to this new company. Um, so the, the last three years I was like fully committed and working really, really, really hard at Carvana. So I wasn't like doing multiple things at the time. Um, what I did do though, is like when I still ran my company for the first four years after business school, we were heads down and like working seven days a week. Then when I became an employee, at least I got my weekends back. And, and since a lot of my friends were the same age as I am, um, I went to a lot of weddings. Um, a lot of these weddings vary internationally, and my favorite place is South America. I just love it. My parents are from Argentina. My cousins live in Argentina. I have a lot of friends there. Um, and so, so I got exposed to like these cultures that I love, to friends who I either knew from before or friends of friends. Um, and then Latin America is a little behind when it comes to the startup ecosystem. Like Obviously, the U.S. is the forefront. Germany is actually catching up quite a bit, which is exciting. Latin America is a little behind, which means ideas that worked in the U.S. have yet to be tried in South America. Mm. And so a lot of my friends, they just realized that they, they went to schools in the U.S., went back to their home countries to just contribute to, to solving the problems there. And so a lot of these 
friends of mine went back with ideas that worked in the US and uh, are starting to roll them out in, in Latin America. And so it started with weddings and me meeting these people. And I, I, I love, like the way I invest is not nothing that I would copy. I, I love Latin America. So most of the investments are Latin America. I, I love the people that I met. So these are all friends. And then these happen to be businesses that most of them have worked in the US before. Okay. Um, but yeah, that's how I've been thinking about it. And then I got lucky with the exit of my company. I had some disposable cash to invest, uh, mainly though because they're friends. Like I want them to be successful. I had a lot of help from people who I appreciate and thank, thank a lot. Um, and so I want to, to the extent possible, give that back. Sure. So the typical, as I understand it, the typical VC model is you invest in 10 in the hope or belief that one to two might might take off, might become unicorn, whatever all these words that we use. Yeah. What yeah. what are the what's the one or two? And obviously, if these are friends, then you might be alienating other friends if they listen to this. But what are the one or two businesses that you really like? the way it's looking right now of those okay. <laughs> and if you want to if you want to like say i can't answer no no, no no i can't answer i can't answer um i think that my two favorite ones are um one is called and that doesn't mean the others are bad it's just i love what they're doing okay very diplomatic very diplomatic yeah, thank no, you but it's true they're luckily all of them are doing well and that will not be true forever but yeah um so the two cool ones that i like is one is called mimic one is called sue smile uh, mimic, think of uh, Travis Kalanick's Cloud Kitchen. So Travis, who started Uber, went on and he's building these kitchens that you don't see. They're industrial kitchens. You can't see them that restaurants uh, rent to produce food for food delivery. Just delivery only. Of, delivery only. Exactly, How? Exactly. And he started that before March of 2020 when a pandemic and, hit and everything shut down, which Travis knew saw it coming. And then my friend just opened one of those in Brazil. And um, yeah, he went from his first. So it's a little bit different. It's a little bit localized. The offering in his case, he licenses the recipes from other restaurants, from brands. And then when you go to the aggregator, be it DoorDash or Uber Eats, you see, oh, this this restaurant, this burger, in his case, burgers. But the one who fulfills the delivery is not the restaurant, it's him. And so he's paying royalties. Um, and so he started with a burger brand. So every time I call him, I ask him, how many burgers did he sell today? And he went, um, I made the investment, I think, late last year or so. I saw him for New Year's when I was in Sao Paulo. And he said, yeah, we're doing 2,000 burgers a day, which I thought was a lot. Pandemic hit, now he's doing 15,000. <laughs> so, yeah, he, that just went through the roof. And it's perfect. I like it's very early stage. Nobody knows where the journey goes, but I, I just love that business and I love him. He's the best. And the other one is uh, think of Invisalign, like braces, mm -hmm. um, but for Latin America. And so what, what I love about that is hey, the guy's just incredible. Like I want to be like him as a founder, but also Latin America is starting to have like a middle class and um, people in South America are vain, not in a negative way, in a, I think positive way. Um, and you can, your teeth just make so much of your first impression. Yeah. Um, and braces are very expensive. See, there's the snap. Yeah. Um, and, and so I feel like he's, he's building a good business, which I'm excited about, but he's also helping people like create a different first impression. I think it becomes a, like a flywheel, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, 
And so I, I had braces when I was a kid. I didn't understand why my parents thought, no, this is important and I'm thankful for it. And so I feel like he's, he's doing something really good for the, com- for the, for the country. Yeah. I, you know, Nicholas, something that just came to me that I, I have to ask because I think in the world we're in today, to, to be able to find something that gives us joy is sort of rare for a lot of people. And I use the word joy intentionally here. Tell me, describe the joy that you have in helping friends with their passion and bringing it to fruition. Now it can kind of go back. Obviously you were blessed with the sell of your business. So there's some finances that came, but can you, can you quantify or, or tell us what that emotion is like? To be able to do that because you've been smiling and, and you you kind of have a, almost a little bit different demeanor in talking about it tell us what that's like because i would love i would love that feeling <laughs> so i appreciate that um i think actually this is i i have that from my dad who's probably the most generous person i know he just loves giving back and having creating experiences for friends that are super fun yeah. like to give an example he, he's from south america lives in europe and he has like a little vacation house in in Spain, um, and so he 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 brought alpacas, these llamas. Yeah. <laughs> now they live in Spain, and um, I always ask myself, why would do that? I like it's pretty funny. Every time we come with friends, they're just so excited to play with these animals, and I think that's what he ultimately gets out of it. That people are having a good time. Um, so why what is it that I feel? I, I don't know. That's just what, what I feel like is incredibly rewarding. I, I'm, I'm lucky to have a lot of good friends. They've been really patient with me over the years when I was just heads down and, and busy and wasn't available. And um, yeah, I, I like the moments that I enjoy most are the ones when we bring all our friends together and then hearing their stories and hearing how they spend their time. I'm also, I think, like on the one hand, I really enjoy that. And on the other hand, I'm also calling my friends out when I feel like you're doing something that's not authentic to yourself. And I want my friends to do that for me too. And they do it all the time. Because uh, I think that's how you, when you're naturally yourself, you just you just are more joyful. Right. I think when you're forced into a role or a position where you're just not 100% comfortable, then it's hard to like celebrate it. Sure. So you are, so you're not just writing a check to help out. You're also, I don't want to say active actively involved but you're interacting and communicating and coaching i'm a coach so you're 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 also you know iron sharpening iron you two are bouncing things off each other is that correct so i wouldn't call it coaching because these guys are at least as if not more sophisticated than me but um no yeah i'm like we're chatting all the time and they ask me questions i'll ask them the same questions like it's it's just like two people who are smart, who have different perspectives, exchanging thoughts like that, that quickly makes one plus one to be bigger than two. Well, in many ways, that's a good coach. I mean, you're, you've got a background in a, as a golfer. You know that many times the athlete is much more proficient at the actual item. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> so the coach. My, I, my coach was great. My coach, she's like, yeah, the technique, we've got this. And now he just kept telling me, you're so good. You're so good. You're the best one here. Just make it happen. It was all making me feel confident. Um, and then, but he also knew me very well that I was like sure. at moments of doubts every now and then. So the big thing for me, and I actually see you doing the same thing, is what you do is you're reaching inside people and pulling out greatness or or just enhancing the greatness that's already there. That's that to me is good coach. I don't know. Don't 
you you have you have some coach in you you really do there's there's <laughs> appreciate <something. laughs> it thanks for saying that yeah yeah yeah. all right so as we as we wrap up here i usually do a couple of wrap-ups with a few questions though i want you you know we talked about uh and and the word that you use to describe it is is as i saw on the website digital auto refinance platform yeah and tell us i'm just going to give you time to i mean you know tell us uh, a little bit of that story, the journey, tell people, yep. I mean, I, I'll let you let, tell people that might have interest in it, where to go to get more info. I mean, just go ahead and give us big commercial, long commercial, whatever. I'm going to give you the time to do that. I'd love to hear what's going on. Cause obviously, you know, we've, we started with passion. I want to finish this podcast with the thing that you're passionate about right now and working on. <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks. Sir. I'll try to keep it short. So Car loans are interesting because different than mortgages. Mortgages, you get a mortgage if you have prime credit, it's not available to you if you don't have prime credit. Car loans are available to everyone. It's just the, the, the difference is APR, interest rate. And so car loans can be as, as, as high as 29%, which this may sound like too aggressive or predatory. I don't actually think at the time of origination, so the day you get your loan, it's predatory because there's a market for everything. If you were less risky as a borrower, or if people like you, like the portfolio of yous were less, less risky as a borrower at the time, your rate would be lower. I think it becomes quote unquote predatory if you continue to be disciplined making your payments for 12, 18, 24 months, and you're still paying the rate as if you were as challenged credit as you were, you were two years ago. And so you have three three tiers. Let's say one is above 700, second one is 600 to 700 credit score, and another one below 600. If you're in these tiers and make your payments, you actually can jump into the next tier. So somebody who was below 600 credit score and improves their improves their credit score into 650, for example, you're still treated quote unquote as a subprime borrower. But if you were to originate, if you were to get a new car loan, you would have a massively lower rate. And so in order to do that, we'll refinance your auto loan. And then you do the same jump from if you're near prime and you made all your payments, um, then we'll reward you and lower your rate too. And so the, the, whole, the whole thinking behind it or the way we, we learned about it is in the challenge credit space, you have two, two, demograph uh, two segments. One is we call it chronically bad credit or behaviorally bad credit. And one we call situationally bad credit. Mm. The first group is the one that we actually wanted to help first when we thought about what do, do we want to spend our next 10 years on? Helping people who don't understand credit better understand it. That's very hard though, because you need to teach somebody financial literacy and that means you need to actually start very early in life. So that's, I think, very hard and I haven't come up with a good, good thought yet. Yeah. The segment you can help a lot are people who were situationally bad credit, quote unquote bad credit, because you had medical bills, you had a divorce, there was a pandemic, you lost your job. Those people have the willingness to pay their loans, but for some reason in the moment lack ability, and that's why they slide down the credit tiers. And so our whole mission is to help people get out of that hole again. Um, the, the angle we understand very well is car loans, because that's what we've been, for seven, been doing for seven years. Mm -hmm. The mission is broader though, because if you, if you buy a car, you sign six contracts, you sell a car, you buy a car, you have your financing, you have an insurance product, you have warranties, you have gap insurance. And so what we want to become long-term is think of credit karma for auto loans mm. or for your auto, auto ownership to make sure that every time you qualify for a low rate or every time you qualify for a better insurance policy, 
you get a notification, one click and we'll take care of it for you. So someone's in the system, you guys are monitoring that for them and letting them know, listen, you can lower your payment by X or you can, you know, you, so you're watching that exactly. for them instead of what in many ways the system does is it's the reverse of that. You miss yeah. a payment and all of a sudden it goes up. You, I mean, exactly. that's what credit cards are. So, so, and, and how far along are you and where are you at as far as the phases of the, uh, the business? The so we, we launched, you can go www.withclutch.com, refinance withclutch.com. You can submit your details. It's very easy. You start with a phone number, confirm your phone number, and then it's two clicks and you get a firm offer. And then at that point, we'll get in touch with you and allocate you to the best new lender. That will be the next steps. We'll be fully automating all of that and then broadening the, the offering, going away from only offering refinance to tell you about all the, the other products where we can help you improve. And so, yeah, super early stage. It's Chris and me, and we're building the team as we speak. Sure. I think I went to the site, and, and it, and it kind of simplifies some things. It says, here's some of the more common vehicles that we could work with. If you have this, click here. Yeah. And so there's obviously some data that you already have there. But so if someone's listening, how would they know if there's someone that they need to reach out to? You give, give yeah. a profile or a description of who should get in touch I with you now. Yeah, I think everybody should try at any given time. There's zero cost to doing it. That's okay. I think one thing that people to think about. Like the cost is one minute of your time, and then you know whether or not you qualify for a lower rate, and and then we'll take care of the rest. If you want us to remind you when the time is right, we'll do that. If we can help you in the moment, we'll do that. Um, I think there. Well, I believe there's no downside to trying, so just try it out. It's like starting a company. You have to start. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Well, what we'll do is we'll make sure down in the notes for the episode that will include uh, that uh, that link so that people can click and go online and, and check that out. So thank you for sharing awesome. that. Nicholas, yeah, I'm you. sure you and I could have discussion at length. We probably busted through uh, the usual the <laughs> usual time, but um, you mentioned the website. Any, any other ways that people can connect with you or get in touch with you if they want to do it uh, however personally or if, if it's just through the company, that's fine. What would you prefer? No, of course. Go to LinkedIn, look for Nicholas Henriksen or look for Nicholas Carlipso or Nicholas Carvana. You'll find me, connect with me. I'd love, I'd love to hear what you're up to. If you're working on a new business, happy to help. If you want me to help you refinance your car loan, if you have any other thoughts and questions, feedback. If you have feedback, feedback is a gift. So I'll, I'll take it and thank you for it. Yeah, excellent. What's next for you, Nicholas? What's or short term, well, long term, whatever? So the very next thing is after we speak, I think I have a few conversations. I'll sit down with Chris. I'm in Phoenix as we speak, about to go back to the Bay Area um, to sit next to Chris because the last time we started a, a company, he was literally in a garage. We, we might to move to his living room to begin with and then uh, figure out whether or not we want to be completely remote or not. So these are interesting questions we need to deal with in the next couple of months. And I look forward to it. Yeah, that's excellent. Well, definitely keep me updated. And, uh, you oh, well. know, as always, I don't know what I could do, but if I could help you with guys, guys with anything, let me know. The title of our podcast, Nicholas, is Seek, Go, Create. Which one of those words says something to you and why? I, I think I said it earlier. I just took the question and answered you earlier. Did. I think I would I would naturally pick create probably, yeah. um, and I think that goes back to to the initial conversation we have. Like somebody who seeks is 
And this is how I'm envisioning Chris, my co-founder. He just seeks for opportunities and seeks for these gaps that we talked about or misalignments. Mm-hmm. Um, once he finds them, he presents 10 to me. Usually I'll tell him these nine, I don't agree with this one. I agree with, and then I start creating. I think in our relationship, that's just more the role I play. And that's why I picked the word. That's awesome. Yeah, you did mention that earlier. Thank you again for joining us on the podcast, Nicholas. I really appreciate you taking the time to share with us. If you would like to continue the conversation, and I really encourage you to do that, we welcome that. Go to seekgocreate.com. That's seekgocreate.com to comment on this episode, ask questions. I'll reach back out to Nicholas if it's something specific to him and see if he could jump in and maybe uh, maybe answer or communicate with it. You can also find us and communicate on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. All of those places we are Seek, Go, Create. Thank you again for joining us. We look forward to connecting with you on the Seek, Go, Create podcast in the near future.